My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. Good to see all of you. We're spending this decade in the book of Luke, and we're spending this last couple of weeks in the book of Luke, chapter 11 and 12, as we're going through this great adventure series on life beyond believism. Life beyond belief. Going beyond believism and experiencing kingdom life. And we want to title this message, Beyond the Comfort Zone. Beyond the Comfort Zone. We saw last week in the last chapter, chapter 11, that Jesus give some really dire warnings to the Pharisees and the scribes. The harshest language you find Jesus using in the Gospels, we saw last week. Really in-your-face stuff. Uh, But that was spoken to religious leaders. And so he gave a message on avoiding religious abuse and detecting religious abuse. It was was tough language, language that Jesus hardly ever uses, but it was appropriate given that he's a prophet and they're religious teachers. And so it was hard-hitting stuff, but it didn't apply to most of us. At least it didn't hit most of us. Uh, it instructed us on what to, what to watch out for, but, but we, we stayed clear of, of the hard-hitting stuff of Jesus. Not so this morning, folks. Uh, we're going to see now Jesus turns his attention to his disciples, and he has some very strong words to say to them. Um, it's hard-hitting. This message is about as confrontational as any message I can imagine a message being, to American Christians. This week, as I was really pulling this together on Thursday, it just hit me between the eyes. And whenever I give messages like this, I always like to share the fact that if if I'm making you feel miserable, it's because I'm inviting you on my misery. This convicts me before it convicts you. Um, This is just in-your-face stuff. You know, the Bible says that in the last days, there'll be people who have itching ears and just want to hear what they want to hear, and they'll choose their preacher based on how good they make them feel in the moment. I don't know if we have very many people like that around here because we tend to drive them out rather quickly and I think that's, you either gotta, you either gotta give in or, or, or you end up leaving. This is one of those kind of messages. Uh, it is right out of the Bible, but it is between the eyes. And um, I just wanna pray right now that we submit ourselves to the word. We didn't come here to get entertained, right? We didn't come here to feel good about, you know, whatever. Uh, we came here for truth. And truth sometimes hurts and we need it to hurt and we need it to confront us. I believe that before this message is done in the next 40 minutes, uh, God's going to lead somebody to make a a major, or some people to make a major life change. Not just tweaking the pattern of our life, which is a good thing, but changing the pattern of our life, fundamentally changing. I don't know what that looks like, uh, but we just got to let God uh, God have his way. So pray with me here for a moment. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us in this auditorium and all those who are listening through podcast to lower our defenses completely, to want nothing other than truth right now. Uh, God, help us not to uh, filter out, selectively leave out aspects of what is said and what your word says to preserve our own comfort and convenience. God, help us not to get caught up into a bunch of calculations on what this is going to mean for our life right now. Help us just to receive your word. We submit our hearts. We submit our minds. We submit our lives to your words. Confront us, transform us, and build your radical and beautiful kingdom in our midst. And Lord, help me to stay present and aware of your presence as I give this message. And Lord, collapse anything in me that might care about how it's received and and who's going to like it or not like it. Free me from that so I can just shoot it straight. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said. Amen. If you agreed with that, all God's people said. Amen. Okay, here we go. 
Like last week, we have 12 verses to cover, which is a magnificent amount of verses by Woodland Hill standards. I'm going to read the verse, and then I'm going to make a little comment about it. The first half of this message will be simply exegesis, which means interpreting the Bible. What does it mean? What is it saying? And then I'm going to apply it to our particular situation here in America. And we've got several hundred, maybe a couple thousand people listening overseas. Uh, and you apply it to yourself in your particular cultural context. But my particular context here is America, and that's what I'm going to be applying it to most specifically. So Luke chapter 12, we'll start with verse 1. Luke says, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so that they were being trampled on, they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. Stop there for a moment. Uh, you know, the word about Jesus' miracles is getting out, and so the crowds just keep on increasing and increasing. And uh, uh, Jesus is never impressed with that. In fact, usually, as he's going to do right here, his teaching turns pretty hardcore, and he tends to thin out crowds. In a couple of cases, read John 6, for example, he drives the whole crowd away. So here he comes up with some pretty uh, interesting, rather confrontational teaching, because he says this, turns to his disciples, as the crowd are, crowd's gathering, This is important because when the crowds are gathering, Jesus is now popular, his ratings are going up, it'd be easy to turn political. What do I need to say to keep the crowds? He could water down the message. He could, you know, and if he did that, he'd be involved in hypocrisy. That's what the Pharisees do. That's what the scribes do. So he's going to use this crescendoing crowd as an opportunity to give a teaching about hypocrisy. He says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy is going to be the topic of this whole passage here. These 12 verses are all about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy means duplicity. It it, it means faking it. Not necessarily intentionally faking it, but you are, in fact, faking it. Hypocrisy happens. The word means dual. And it means whenever there's a gulf between how you look and what is real. When, When there's a differential between the outside and the inside, you are to that degree involved in hypocrisy, duplicity. Appearance and reality are not in alignment with one another. Jesus calls this hypocrisy the yeast, the yeast of the Pharisees. And the term yeast would have, for any first century Jew, brought them back to the Exodus uh, in Exodus chapter 12, when there are children of Israel coming out of Egypt. And there they had to make unleavened bread, which means it was bread that was free of, of any kind of uh, yeast. And if you have any yeast in that loaf of bread, it would ruin the whole bread. You couldn't use it. It wasn't consecrated to God. That's why you have this, this, this expression, a little yeast, you know, leavens the whole lump. And so um, yeast became a metaphor for any little thing which if you let it on the inside, it begins to grow and has the potential to spoil the whole thing. The yeast of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. And so what Jesus is saying here is, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. That term, be on your guard, was a phrase that meant be constantly vigilant. Constantly vigilant. So Jesus is saying, be constantly vigilant to make sure that there's no hint of hypocrisy in you. Not even a little. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees we saw last week was this. They were very concerned with exterior stuff, with appearances. They were very concerned with social approval. And they were really interested in the comfort and the benefits that they derived from that social approval. They loved to sit in the choice seats in the synagogue and, and get all the accolades of the culture. So they were interested in appearances, approval, and comfort. And they cared more about that stuff than they did about heart stuff, reality stuff, truth stuff. 
And Jesus is saying to, to fall into that is yeast. It's, it's, it's hypocrisy. So the major point of this passage we're going to see is that Jesus is saying that living for God without hypocrisy, living for God authentically means you must be willing to be socially rejected. You must be willing to be discomforted. You must be willing to suffer. And we'll see, you must even be willing to die. And what he's saying by implication is this. You can't live for God authentically and at the same time be overly concerned with appearances and social approval and personal comfort. Okay, next verse. Jesus says, There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. For what you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. This is a theme that you find running throughout the Bible, but it's especially strong in the New Testament, and the theme is this. On Judgment Day, everything hidden will be exposed. Judgment Day is simply a matter of turning the light of truth on everything. It's as though on Judgment Day, God will simply have to ask one question and everything else will be settled. And the question is, what is real? What is real? And Jesus is giving this teaching now about the judgment because he's saying all hypocrisy will be exposed. Everything that, that, that is different than the way it appears, it will be brought out. All the secrets will be brought out on the Day of Judgment. So he's really saying, get real now. Get real now so you don't have to worry about it becoming real or being exposed as real later on. And then Jesus says this. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you whom you should fear Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. In the Matthew version, it says, to destroy both body and soul in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not, two spar are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Now, it's interesting. All he's talking about sparrows. Uh, the sparrow was the cheapest piece of meat you could buy in the market. So, so... Jesus is pointing to how worthless, by human calculations, these sparrows are. These sparrows are, are, are worthless, yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Okay, Lord, help us to see the, the continuity of this passage here. Let's unpack it. He's saying, don't fear humans. Uh, even though they can kill you. In fact, they're going to kill you. He's told them that. I mean, you got to be ready to suffer. But don't fear them. Now, note that it assumes that humans can kill other humans. Even as a disciple of Jesus, you might die. In fact, all of Jesus' disciples did die, except for John, so far as we know. Jesus' teaching, we should just make note of this, is about as far from prosperity teaching as any teaching could be. Prosperity teaching is that if you follow Jesus, you get a bag of goodies and that your life's going to be sweeter and nicer and nothing bad can happen to you and yada, yada, yada. Ain't so. Jesus says, here's a promise of God you can stand on. If you follow me, there's going to be trials. Uh, it's very far from prosperity teaching. And then Jesus says, fear God because he's got authority to throw you into hell. I'll make two points about this. The word hell here is Gehenna. And Gehenna referred to a valley that was southwest of Jerusalem, and it was really the, the dumping ground of Jerusalem. Uh, all the sewage ran into, most of the sewage ran into Gehenna, this valley. All the garbage was thrown out in Gehenna. And the bodies of criminals who were considered to be uh, so vile they didn't deserve a proper burial, they were also thrown into Gehenna to rot there. 
And at the time of Jesus, this valley, which was associated with fire and vile stuff and putrid stuff, uh, it, that became a metaphor uh, for, for what happens to everything in creation, including human beings, that don't conform to God's will on the judgment day. Whatever's not true, whatever's not consistent with the will of God is burned up. It's thrown out. Uh, it, hell became sort of known as, as the, the dumping grounds of the cosmos on judgment day. Now, there were, in Jesus' time, different interpretations of what exactly happens when you're thrown into Gehenna. Uh, there were those who thought that, um, that just like trash is burned up in Gehenna, so also the wicked, when they're thrown into Gehenna, they get burned up. They might suffer for a time, and, they might, and then they'll burn up. So they believed in eternal annihilation. But there were others that said, no, if the wicked are thrown into Gehenna, they burn, but they never burn up. And so they suffer eternally. And uh, there's difference of opinion there. And scholars disagree on which view Jesus was uh, embracing and giving this teaching on hell. But the point either way is the same. Uh, you don't want to go there. Uh, this, is, this, is, th th this is a nightmarish fate. Uh, it denotes everything that is bad and terrible. And so you want to avoid that. So Jesus says, fear God because he has authority to throw you into that. Now, this is my, my second point. How are we to fear God? Well, what does that mean to fear God? What kind of fear are we supposed to have? How is fearing God, like he's going to throw me in hell? How is that compatible with the, the teaching that we always see in the Bible and we always give here about how Jesus is our friend, he's our savior, he's on our side, he's not against us, he's for us, and there's no condemnation to women in Christ Jesus and, and go boldly before the throne of grace and so on and so on. How can you both be fear, fear God and have this friendship with God? And it doesn't help that we have a long tradition in church history, and it's very prevalent today, of people who try to motivate people to be fearful by giving a terrifying view of God, uh, sometimes a monstrous view of God. Jonathan Edwards, for all of his brilliance and sometimes great sermons, but he, he, he's got a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if you want to be terrified, read that, poem, that, that sermon and try to believe it because it's terrifying. But he, among other things, he pictures God as, as, as this, like a person holding a spider on a very thin thread, over, dangling over a fire, kind of torturing the, the, the spider. And Jonathan Edwards says, you are the spider. You're a sinner in the hands of an angry God. And God would just assume, let you go and delight in your burning. But there's a, something about his mercy that keeps you from doing that, at least for some people. Others, he's just going to let burn in there. And, and so you get this picture of God. And like, yes, this disgusting, you are just a disgusting, loathsome, repulsive spider. I want to burn you. Yeah, maybe I won't. Maybe I will. And see, that's just not the picture we're given. But that does cause fear. But that's not the picture we're giving about, uh, about God and Jesus Christ. Here's what's interesting about this teaching in this passage. Jesus gives this fear teaching, fear God. And then he supports it by talking about how much God loves us. Sparrows are worthless, but God even loves and cares about the sparrows. You're much more important than sparrows. God's so interested in you, he's got the hairs of your head numbered. Uh, and and you know, how to put these two things together? What Jesus is saying here is this. Don't fear human beings who can you know, destroy uh, uh, your body, but then can do nothing more than that. Um, don't fear them because God loves you. And, and even when the sparrow dies, God knows about it. So when it, when, if they kill you, God knows about it. He loves you, so don't sweat it. Have so much confidence in God's love that you're not trying to cling to your life. If you die, you die. But God loves you and it's going to be all right. But you should fear, you should have a fear, a reverence towards a God who can also decide that you are trash and throw you out into the, in, into the garbage heap. Here's an analogy of the kind of fear I think we ought to have towards God, even as believers. There's a, there's a kind of respectful fear that we ought to have. And it's like this, analogy. When I was 11 years old, 
um, I lived by a hill. Uh, it was about a half mile away. It was a very steep hill, and during the winter, we'd go sledding down it, you know, on, laying on our stomachs. We'd sled down the, this uh, hill. And there was one part of the hill that was really steep, and on that part of the hill, there was telephone poles that were staggered all the way down. And we bright 11-year-olds used to have contests like solemn skiing. We, we got the idea of watching the Olympics or something. It's like, oh, cool. And so we'll go in and out of these telephone poles, and we'll see who can make, like five of them, and we'll see who can make all five. And so we would do this, and usually we didn't get more than two, uh, sometimes three. And my dad saw us doing that one time, and so when I got home, he reamed me out. And he said, I don't want you ever going down that hill or on those telephone poles again, because that's dangerous, that's stupid, I thought you had more sense than that, and if I see you doing that, there will be Gehenna to pay. And I feared him, he had the power to do that. <laughs> but being an 11-year-old with my frontal lobe cortex not fully developed, I... <laughs> decided to disobey him at one point. My friends were saying, come on, come on, come on, don't be a chicken, don't be a chicken. And so I went over and went uh, down that hill. And I made four of the five telephone poles, but I did not make the fifth telephone pole. And uh, I ended up wrapping my body around it. The doctor says I must have been going at least 20, maybe up to 30 miles an hour. And it was, we were going fast. I mean, it was really fast on that thing. I crushed my insides, you know, just smashed them up all, get out, uh, totally burst apart my spleen. I had internal bleeding. Uh, in fact, at one point, the doctor told my dad, I'm afraid he only has like a one in four chance of living. I came close to death. I got a major scar all the way over from my chest down to my belly button because they had to rip me open to try to do some emergency operation to find out all that was wrong. I was a mess. But here's the thing. I hit that pole rolled down the hill. I knew something was very, very wrong. I, I, it's like, my, this feels very weird. It wasn't really pain. It was just like weird. My sister comes running over and says, Greg, should I go and, 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 and get dad? <laughs> and even though, even though I was, I think, in a state of shock, I still had enough sensibilities, if you can call it, to say, no, don't get dad. He'll kill me. <laughs> He'll kill me. And so I, uh, I actually got up off the ground and, and I was, I was going to try to pretend like I was okay. I'm fine. I'm telling you, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I tried to walk home. I made about 10 yards and then passed out. So my sister had to go and tattle on me and, and brought me to the hospital and, and they, they, they saved my life. But here's the thing. I should have feared my dad. Now, my dad wasn't there trying to spoil my fun. He wasn't being an ogre. It's just that he loves me. I knew he loved me and he knows what's best for me. And so if he tells me something in very strong language, I ought to have a re fearful respect for that. Not a terrorized thing like, oh, he's out of his anger, wrath, going to just want to destroy me. But he loves me and he cares about me and, and therefore wants the best for me. So too, we should fear God in the sense that we know he loves us. We know that he knows what's best for us. And we ought to have incredible respect for that. And what God is saying to us in this passage is this. Don't get infected with the yeast of the Pharisees because if you do, it can make trash of your life. And if you're trash, the only thing that can be done with you is to be thrown out into the garbage heap. So he's saying, don't fear people, Jesus says. Don't fear people. Yeah, they can kill your body. Yeah, God loves you. Don't worry about it. But you fear ever becoming duplicitous. Fear ever becoming a hypocrite because when that happens, you're trash and now you, there's no place for you in the kingdom. Then moving on, Jesus says, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever publicly disowns me will be disowned before the angels of God. Tough teaching here. What Jesus is saying, once again, is that on judgment, the light of truth goes on. Truth will be revealed. And if you disown me uh, before others, that just reveals that you don't really own me. 
If you really own me, you wouldn't disown me when, when, when owning me counts. And on Judgment Day, however much you can pretend around that and conceal that, if you have a, a heart that disowns Christ, that will be revealed on the Day of Judgment. Jesus is clearly not talking about a one-time denial, like there's one sin that you could do that all of a sudden would exclude you from eternity, because Peter denied Christ three times and yet was allowed into the kingdom. He was restored. But Jesus is addressing a person whose lifestyle is Christ's denial. That rhymed. Whose lifestyle is Christ's denial. But they may look very Christian. See, that's the rub. A person who professes Christ but in actuality denies Christ because they place their appearance or their social approval or comfort or self-preservation before Christ. And that's why when persecuted, they deny Christ. This is why the New Testament, both Jesus and others in the New Testament warn over and over again, not warn, but teach, that if you follow Jesus, you must expect to suffer. That's part of what you sign up for when you follow Jesus. Don't be surprised by that. Expect it. In fact, they say count it all joy. And then Jesus says this, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is a very important point. I could preach a whole sermon on this. Because it's very important because I have over the years met a number of people who are convinced they committed the unforgivable sin. And therefore, there's nothing they can do about it. And some go crazy when they believe that, and you can understand why. Let's talk about what this means, the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit. Whatever else it means, it can't possibly refer to a one-time thing that a person does. Um, uh, a one-time sin that you wish you could confess, but now all bets are off. Because the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. No if, ands, or buts, no exception clauses there. If you can confess your sin, you're forgiven of your sin. So obviously, the, the, the sin against the Holy Spirit, this unforgivable sin, is not a sin that you ever confess. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit applies to a person whose heart has become so irrevocably hardened to the Holy Spirit that they're beyond remorse. They're so good at pushing the Holy Spirit out that the Holy Spirit can no longer get in to convict them of their sin. So therefore, they never ask for forgiveness, and that's why they never receive forgiveness. And this is the, the situation the Pharisees were in. Uh, they were, they were, Jesus didn't tell them that they had committed the, the sin of the Holy Spirit, uh, sin against the Holy Spirit, but he warns them he warned them about that. Uh, they got to the point where they actually confused the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was doing with the devil. When you get to the point where you can't tell the, the difference between God and Satan, you're in bad shape. That's indicative of a, a very hard heart. So the bottom line is that if you can ask for forgiveness, you haven't committed blasphemy uh, against the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you're worried that you have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, I can assure you, you haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit because if you had, you wouldn't be worried about it. The fact that that shows some sensitivity to God that you're even worried about it. But Jesus here, here's why, here's why this passage occurs right where it does. Jesus is here warning his disciples about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because he's saying once the yeast of the Pharisees takes root, it has the potential to completely harden a person to God. Be constantly vigilant against the yeast of the Pharisees. It gets in, it may seem like a little thing, but it starts to grow and grow and grow, and it has the potential to completely harden you to the Holy Spirit where you're no longer sensitive to the Holy Spirit, you no longer care about the Holy Spirit, and then you're beyond hope. What's, what, what makes this so diabolic is this. 
The yeast of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. And the thing about hypocrisy is that the more you do it, the better you get at it. And so the worse you get at the inside, the better you look on the outside. Hypocrisy is the worst disease you could ever, ever have. Other diseases, spiritual and physical, when you're sick, you look sick. And that's good because if you look sick, now you can do something about it. But if, with the sin of hypocrisy, uh, the sicker you look, the better you look. It's like some kind of cancer that is on the inside. It's eating you on the inside. You're dying. But the, the more you die, the healthier you look. You see, it's, it's absolutely diabolic. And, and so, so what Jesus is saying here is this. Uh, put on your top priority, above all things, to commit to being real. Commit to being real. Guard against any hint of hypocrisy. If you've got secrets in your life, get rid of them now. Everything that's on the inside has got to come on the outside. That doesn't mean you air your dirty laundry before everybody, but folks, this is why community is so important to the kingdom. It's about community because we all need people in our life that we can be absolutely real to. We can, we can barf it out. Just whatever, whatever garbage is on the inside, you barf it out. Here's what's real, and you know that they're going to love you and not going to walk away. And when you get it on the outside, now they can help walk with you to walk away from that stuff. But if you just keep on swallowing it and swallowing it and swallowing it, always putting on the happy face, the religious face, the Christian faith, carrying your Bible, talking the talk, well, you just get better and better and better at doing that all the while you're dying on the inside. And to you, you got to hear the warning that Jesus is giving here, and that is that on Judgment Day, there's no pretending. So, so it's going to get real sooner or later, so might as well make it real now. And see, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, the Bible says. And the word truth in Greek is aletheia. It means to uncover. The Holy Spirit is always seeking to uncover. And that's why hypocrisy is resisting the Holy Spirit. You're not living in truth. You're living in duplicity. And then Jesus closes this out by saying this. When you, were brought before syn- when you are brought before synagogues, count on this, and when you are brought before rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. It's always good to ask when you're studying the Bible, how does this verse relate to the previous verse? And how does this, how does this form a whole? Because it could look like a random verse. Like, what's that doing there? But actually, I think it's there on purpose. What Jesus is saying here is this. In contrast to those who at least have the potential to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, who are hard against the Holy Spirit, You, my disciples, I want you to stay completely submitted to the Holy Spirit, even when your life is at stake. Even when they deliver you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities and they're going to try you and put you to death and torture you, even then, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your life. God loves you. Your your, your name's written in the Lamb Books of Life. He's got your hairs numbered. It's going to be okay, so don't worry about that. Uh, you know, but, but rather be open to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit won't allow you to become duplicitous, hypocritical. He won't allow you to fake it. Um, he'll keep you true and he'll tell you what to say. So don't be pre-thinking all the stuff you're going to say and how you're going to defend yourself and save your life. Rather, just yield to the Holy Spirit and he'll tell you what to say. It's the opposite of resisting the, the Holy Spirit. And now I want to apply this to our situation here uh, in America. And podcasters, you just apply it to the situation that you're in. As I said, I don't think there's any message we could possibly give that, has, that is more confrontational to us here and now than this passage. Uh, let me review it one more time. Jesus says, be vigilantly on guard against any hint, any hint of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And the hypocrisy of the Pharisees is that they put approval and appearance and comfort before truth, what's true in the heart. 
So Jesus is saying, don't have a faith. Do not have a faith. Take care that you don't have a faith where you say the right things like the Pharisees do, and you do the right religious things like the Pharisees do, but it's not real on the inside. And the main indication that a person's faith isn't real on the inside is that they fear social rejection. They fear discomfort. They fear suffering. They put comfort and self-preservation before faithfulness to Christ. And so what Jesus, in a nutshell, is saying here is this. To make Jesus Christ Lord, really, not just verbally, but really, means that nothing else can compete. To put make Jesus Christ Lord means that nothing else can be Lord. To make Jesus Christ Lord means that everything else has to be put on the back burner, far back on the back burner. To make Jesus Christ Lord means nothing else can rule you, nothing else can, can determine your behavior other than him. So to make Jesus Christ Lord means that comfort cannot be Lord, means that pleasure cannot be Lord, means convenience cannot be Lord, means fear of pain cannot be Lord, means self-preservation cannot be Lord. To make Jesus Christ Lord means the American dream can't be Lord, family can't be Lord, friends can't be Lord, nations can't be Lord. Why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord. And you can't serve two masters. It comes down to an all-or-nothing thing. Allegiance to Jesus Christ. To follow Jesus Christ authentically means, it means this, that we're willing to sacrifice all. We're willing to suffer. We're willing to put up with major inconveniences. We're willing to be socially rejected, ridiculed, persecuted, and maybe even killed. And now comes the challenge. We are here in America and throughout much of Europe, culturally conditioned. Let's be honest. We're culturally conditioned to care a great deal about appearances. The nice house, the nice car, nice suit, nice everything. Respectability. We're, we're, we're culturally conditioned, systematically, continually, perpetually, nonstop, culturally conditioned to care a whole lot about social approval. We're conditioned to care a whole lot, a whole, whole lot about comfort and convenience. In fact, we are here culturally conditioned not only to want the American dream, but to think we have a right to it. We deserve it, which is why we're outraged if there's some aspect of it that we're not getting. At least a lot of us are in that boat. Which is why the bar, when there's some aspect of the American dream that we're, we're cut out of, we often can feel like we're suffering. Our bar of suffering is very, very low. If you don't believe that, just go to a third world country and look at what they put up with, and you realize that we whine and gripe and complain about stuff that they would never dream of complaining about. We are in America, let us be honest, pampered, spoiled. And what complicates it even further is that we've got a whole theology out there that says that not only do you have a right to the American dream and all the goods and toys that come with it, not only do you have a right to that as an American citizen, but you have a super right to it uh, as a child of God because Jesus is a super capitalist and he's super for America. And so if you follow Jesus, he's going to be superimposing the toys and the blessings and, and, and you'll be getting the American dream even better. No suffering. Get rid of that talk. Blah, that's negative. Why be negative? Let's be happy. And so with that mindset... Some of us come out of theological backgrounds like that. With that mindset, we have trouble, let us be honest, sacrificing anything because we think we have a right to it all. We have trouble enduring any kind of inconvenience, let alone any kind of genuine suffering. It's one of the reasons why addictions are so rampant in our culture. The idea of suffering is that you know, other folks are used to suffering. That's part of life. We're not. We're not, and there's a good side of that, but there's a downside, and the downside is that we get so pampered and so self-indulgent. And as I put this together, and here's what hit me on Thursday, it means that if any people in the history of the world have ever been in danger of the duplicity and hypocrisy that Jesus is warning about, it's us. 
It's us. Think about it this way. Think about it this way. And Holy Spirit protects us against condemnation, but opens us up to conviction. Let's just see reality. Holy Spirit, turn the light of, of truth on. Jesus called on the early Christians to suffer because he calls on all of his followers to suffer, and the early church did. They suffered in the normal kingdom ways of sacrificing their resources for one another, caring about the poor. They did that marvelously. You read the book of Acts. They had all things in common. They shared. No one went without. But they also suffered in some other ways. Beyond that normal kingdom stuff, these folks sometimes had to watch their kids and the rest of their family be fed to lions before they did. They had to be willing to be impaled on post, then tarred, and then lit on fire. Nero did that to some Christians. That's where he got the phrase Roman candles from. Uh, he'd make candles out, out of the, the, these people. Some of these Christians went through all sorts of social rejection. That was, that was the easy part of their suffering. But then they had to be delivered up, and some of them had their skin flayed off of them with hot irons. Others, we have accounts of, were, were boiled in, in oil. All because they wouldn't confess Caesar as Lord. They wouldn't pledge allegiance to Caesar or to the Roman Empire. And they wouldn't fit in. They fought the cultural values. And Rome, like most empires, don't like people who are nonconformists. And so these folks were put to death. They put Christ before their comfort, their self-preservation. And yet, Jesus says to these folks, to these people, don't fear that. Yeah, torture, it's never pleasant, but don't fear that. In fact, I'm telling you to expect that. Uh, but don't fear that because remember, God loves you and, and you're more valuable than sparrows and he's got the number of your head, hairs on your head counted. So it's going to be all right. So don't fear that. But here's what you've got to fear. Fear, be vigilantly on guard against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees where you might become duplicitous and you might be tempted to deny me. Don't do that. Be on guard against that. And so the challenge, folks, to us is this. Here's what hit me on Thursday. If Jesus warned people facing torture not to become hypocritical by putting fear of suffering and death in front of him, how much more does this warning apply to us Americans who have trouble sacrificing anything for Christ? All of us, of course, would say, well, you know, if we were persecuted, we would offer up our life for Christ. I'm willing to die for Christ. Um, and that's good. But here's the thing. We, 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 we believe we will offer up our life to Christ, but we have tremendous trouble offering up anything in our life to Christ. Yes, I'll give him my life, but I, I, but I don't want to give him anything in my life because I like him. And so we want to enjoy those. Here, here's, 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 a, here's, here's the thing we got to think about. If denying Christ when undergoing torture reveals that a person's faith in Christ is disingenuous, what might it say when at least some of us are so caught up in the American dream that according to statistics, we spend 97% of our income on ourselves while there are people who are hungry and homeless all around us and around the globe? All the while, for some of us at least, our standard of living is four times the global average. And all the while, we know very well that Jesus said that one of the main signs of a true kingdom heart is that you care about the poor. Let that land. It's a question. For some, it maybe isn't 97%. What are we to think of the fact that we only give 80%? Uh, we spend 80% of our income on ourselves. It raises the question, does it not? At least the possibility that our American addiction to appearances and comfort, what we call the American dream, has infected us with the yeast of the Pharisees and reduced our discipleship to just words and some religious things. If denying Christ when undergoing torture reveals that a person's faith in Christ's lordship was disingenuous, 
What does it say that some of us are so caught up in the American rat race dream that we spend, according to statistics, an average of 20 or more hours a week watching television, but we can't find the time to carve out to to, to be with kingdom community and to to be involved in kingdom ministries, despite the fact that we know Jesus told us that we're to seek first the kingdom of God, make that the highest priority of our life. Might it raise the question, raise the possibility that our addiction, our American addiction to nice appearances and the nice stuff and to comfort and convenience what we call the American dream has infected us with the yeast of the Pharisees. We've got to live in that question. And if denying Christ when undergoing torture reveals that a person's faith in Christ was disingenuous, what are we to think of the facts proven a number of times by a number of studies? That research reveals that the majority of professing Christians in America tend to be tend to be as self-absorbed, as addicted to comfort, as morally self-indulgent, as Americanized, and as concerned or preoccupied with appearances and comfort as their pagan neighbors. In fact, the research shows that the only real difference is that they answer a question on a poll differently, and the question is, what do you think about Jesus? It raises the question, it forces the question, might it be the case that our American addiction to appearances and to comfort, what we call the American dream, has infected us with the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the yeast of the Pharisees, so that we're living duplicitous. We confess it, we say it, but the reality of the surrendered kingdom just isn't there. Now, I want to say one final word about this, and that is that it's so important that we remember that the reason Jesus, the reason Jesus calls us to sacrifice everything, and the reason he calls us to be willing to suffer, it's not because he's an ogre and doesn't want us to have fun. Uh, rather, it's because, like my father, he loves us, and like my father, he knows what is best for us. Living a life patterned after the sacrificial way of Jesus is simply the best way to live. God knows that, so he encourages us to live that way. Living, after a, li- living a life patterned after the self-sacrificial Jesus is the only way to live where you can look forward to the judgment instead of, instead of fearing the, 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 the coming judgment. And living a life patterned after the self-sacrificial Jesus uh, is the only way to live free. It's the only way to open yourself up for the inflowing of the love of God and the fullness of the kingdom that God wants us to have. It's the only way to be free. When we live with a preoccupation for appearances and social approval and comfort, the American dream and all that it has, when our concern is on that, we are in bondage. Now, we're brainwashed to say that we've arrived and that this is what it's all about. But that is from God's perspective, and he knows what is best. It is bondage, and it can make trash of our lives. All the envy, all the strife, all the anger, the bitterness, the jealousy, you know, and the general angst and emptiness that we experience is because we're too entangled with stuff. And we're trying to get life from our stuff. And what God is saying is be free. And what Jesus says is to be free... It's a radical cure, but it's curing a radical disease. The prescription is die. If you lose your life, you'll find it. If you die to that way of doing life, chasing after the things that the pagans chase after, if you die to that and seek first the kingdom, now you'll enter into life, and now you will be free. A person who has attained, and we're all, you know, none of us have attained it, but this is the direction we've got to be going, gotten to the point where you... Exhibit the carefreeness that Jesus always talks about, including in this passage. You, you can manifest this carefreeness about life. You die, you die. You got it, you got it. Like Paul said, I know how to be rich, I know how to be poor. You know, I, I know what it is to, to be, things to be going well. I, I'm content in all situations to be there where the world has no hold on you. And you're not even clinging to your own life. Not even when your life is being threatened, even then you're free 
to be wondering what God wants you to do rather than how am I going to save my own skin. That is freedom. To not have the tentacles of the world deeply rooted in your life, that is freedom. To seek first the kingdom of God, that is freedom. To die to the American dream and move beyond the comfort zone, now you can enter into the fullness of kingdom life. We are free. And there's a joy and there's a peace, there's authority and a power that comes from that. To be a corpse to all the things the world offers. Corpse. Because you're alive to Christ. And now there's congruity. Now there's congruity. This is not, and I want us to hear this, uh, if, you're, if you're a person who tends to be, uh, you know, rule-oriented and you think in terms of rules, you might be assessing this by saying, oh, okay, uh, I need, for God to like me, I need to get rid of my house and my nice car, my nice clothes, and, and, and you know, whatever. Um, you know, just tell me what to do to get God to like me. I'm not giving you, telling you what to do for God to like you. This isn't about particular things that you're supposed to do or not do, because you could get rid of your house and car and everything else and still be far from God. This is about living in congruity where we surrender everything to Jesus. And so the whole teaching is saying, be authentic, be real. Make your commitment to Jesus real. Make your surrender real. Make your death to the things of the world real and live in congruity with that. And I'm simply saying that we live in a culture that will systematically push against that by all the enticements that are always around us and the promises of false life that are all around us. So what should we do right here and right now? Here's what I want us to do right here and right now. Um, don't try to calculate the implications of this right now. Just think about your heart orientation and let the chips fall where they may. And I'm going to read very, rather quickly, six biblical statements that are true, six biblical teachings, and then raise a question that I feel God wants us to live in, to ask the question. And the most important thing about this is that we be honest. Freedom from hypocrisy starts with self-honesty. If you can't be honest with yourself, you can't get out of hypocrisy because you're being a hypocrite even to yourself. Get honest. What is real? Let's just be, what is real? And when we find that our reality does not line up with what our profession is, this isn't the time to judge yourself or beat yourself up. That never does any good. This is the time to throw yourself in the mercy of God and say, empower me to change, to walk in a different way. And he'll show you what that is. Don't try to get that right now. He, he's interested in a heart orientation. Holy Spirit, right now, turn the light of truth on as I just re walk us through this meditation. As I walk us through this meditation. First, Jesus told us to count the cost when we follow him. So the question we need to ask and live in is, what has my faith cost me? Holy Spirit, turn the light of truth on. Do it now so we don't have to have it done later. What is real? Has it cost you anything? American Christianity takes out the cost because it's selling a product to consumers. So you don't want to talk about cost, but there's a cost. You don't earn anything, but there's a cost, a prerequisite to entering into the free gift that he offers us. What does it cost you? Second question, we are empowered to live radically different lives, reflecting the sacrificial servant character of God, revealed in Jesus Christ on Calvary. So the question we need to ask and live in is this. If I weren't a Christian, how would my life look different than it now does? How is my life different because I'm a follower of Jesus? Holy Spirit, turn the light of truth on. 
would I be living where I'm living and driving what I'm driving and wearing what I'm wearing and spending my money the way I'm spending my money and doing what I'm doing uh, if I wasn't a Christian? How, how, has my fo- how has my following Jesus uniquely impacted my life? Holy Spirit, help us to stay real with ourselves and with you. Scripture says if we share, if we share in his sufferings, we'll share in his glory. Several times it says that. So the question is, how do I share in Christ's sufferings? How do I share in Christ's sufferings? This is not talking about run-of-the-mill pains that you get in the war zone, the bad back that you got and things of that sort. He does share in those sufferings, but the sufferings that these passages talk about are sufferings that come because we're following Jesus. How does your faith pinch you? How does your following Jesus bleed you? What sacrifice is there in your life that is only there because you're a follower of Jesus, not the American dream? Next question. Jesus teaches us that if we're going to follow him, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross. And so the question we've got to live in, especially here and now, us in America, what have I denied myself for the sake of the kingdom Let's just say in the last year. What does my cross consist of? Is there anything that I've said no to that I wanted to say yes to, but I said no because I'm a follower of Jesus? If there is none, it might be an indication that there's too much buy into the American dream, which is opening up the yeast of the Pharisees. Holy Spirit, turn the light of truth on and help us be honest with ourselves. I'd like to ask the worship team to start to come up here as I read the last two two statements. Jesus taught us that to enter the kingdom, we must surrender everything to him. That's what it means for him to be Lord. So the question we've got to live in is this. Do I earnestly and honestly seek Christ's guidance in how I spend my time, my money, my gifts, and everything else? Do I honestly submit them to him? This is just the stuff of life. Money, time, resources, talents, abilities. That's what your life is. To surrender your life to Christ, but not to surrender those things, is not to surrender your life. That's the yeast of the Pharisees. Conversely, to surrender your life, truly, is to surrender all the particular things in your life. The question is, Are they in fact surrendered? Do you seek God's will on the major purchases, on the lifestyle, on the pattern of your life? And if any of these are convicting you, just let it convict. And and, and don't try to calculate right now. Just right now, turn your heart. Just say, Lord, I submit. Lord, I commit. Lord, I surrender. I surrender. Lord, I surrender it all to you. And finally, the New Testament teaches that true freedom, peace, and joy Come from dying to all the world offers and seeking first the kingdom. And so the question is this. Do I experience the freedom? Do I really experience the freedom, the peace and the joy that comes from dying to all the world offers and seeking first the kingdom? Are you free? Are you free? Maybe it's good to ask yourself the question on a day-by-day basis, where does your mind go? What are you preoccupied about? What, 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 uh, What are you worried about? Are you obsessed with 
the comforts and the appearances and the approvals and those sorts of things. And if you are, don't indict yourself. Don't beat yourself up. It will do no good. Just die. Some I'm saying is die. Surrender it. Surrender it over to him. And say, Lord, help me to be a person. Empower me to be a person who seeks first the kingdom and to die to that. And the implications of that will work itself out the rest of your life. But right now, just make a decision. Will you close your eyes for a moment? Holy Spirit, I pray, God, that you will right now seal on our hearts anything you've just revealed to us and seal on our hearts any commitments we just made. And for some, Lord, it may not just be a tweaking of the pattern of their life. It may be the adventure of moving into a whole new pattern. God, protect them against fear and embolden them to live in authenticity to you, to put you before all other considerations. For all of us, Lord, and for all those listening right now, God, help us to die to everything that might cause us fear, to everything that might cause us compromise, to everything that might cause us to sell out. God, help us to die to anything that might provide an opening for the infection of the yeast of the Pharisees, that our lives may be holy surrender to you. And now, Lord, as we take up this offering, uh, we do it with the acknowledgement that you are God of our life and therefore God of our finances. And so we earnestly and honestly seek your guidance on how we should steward your resources. Lead us on that and cultivate it in our hearts, kingdom hearts of outrageous generosity towards the poor and every other aspect of the kingdom. And as we do this, Lord God, continue to work and massage our hearts to surrender to you, to surrender to you, everything to you. In Jesus' name. As we take out this offering, I encourage you to offer it as a surrender and also worship the Lord with this song, this classic song, I Surrender. In Jesus' name. worship here and I just want to let I encourage you to be open to the Holy Spirit to saturating you with this message uh, saturating with you with your his love drawing you to the cross evoking from you more surrender uh, as we go into this time of worship I want to encourage all who feel led to to come forward and if you want to kneel at this altar 
at surrender. Uh, I encourage you to do that. I'd like to ask our prayer teams, uh, this wasn't planned, but if our, if our prayer teams are in the auditorium right now, would you go to the sides here? And if you'd like to have prayer for any particular thing, I encourage you to do that. Or maybe you want to confess something. You can do that as well. We're just going to open it up. Obey the Holy Spirit. Let's stand and worship the Lord in truth. anything that God's doing up here or in your seat or anywhere so you can stay if you want to stay and just sit receive whatever you're supposed to receive I encourage you that if you made a decision to really surrender something if God really revealed something to you anything really significant that stood out to tell someone about it uh, and that's part of bringing the inside and the outside and uh, and share with somebody uh, that what God showed you about yourself uh, maybe a commitment that you made and most of all, as we leave here, let's commit to surrendering. Our lives are to be living sacrifices. Life goes on and on and on, which means we have to put ourselves up in the altar again and again and again, surrendering everything over to him. Father, I, I just pray as we leave this place that you help us guard vigilantly against the yeast of the Pharisees. To say what is true, to live what we say. Make it real on the inside and on the outside. God, help us to have every fiber of our being captivated by the beautiful kingdom. Help us, Lord God, to live free of all the lies that we're going to receive in five minutes when we walk out of this place. Help us to walk free. Guard us. Keep us to be wholly and solely, singularly and fully committed to you. In Jesus' name. And all who agreed with that said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.